Good afternoon and welcome to the Jason Rand Show on AM 770 KTTH. We are streaming live on all those smart speakers like Amazon Echo and Google Home. Shockingly, and I truly mean this, shockingly, a King County Regional Homelessness Authority program didn't work. I am shocked. How about that? It's what's trending. What's trending? The homelessness crisis. Now, the King County Regional Homelessness Authority, the KCRHA, also known as Curaha, they are an absolute failure. The kids used to say it's an epic fail. And that's precisely how we should all describe the KCRHA. They are so bad at what they do. Despite promising us that they were going to get under control the homelessness crisis. And you have all of these cities around King County spending a lot of tax dollars funding this authority for it to mostly focus on Seattle. So the dollars coming in from from Covington or from Bellevue, coming in from Monroe, it's going into Seattle and they're doing virtually nothing to get the crisis under control. And so now it's announcing that it's, quote unquote, winding down this program called Partnership for Zero. And it was highly regarded. Everyone was celebrating this when it was announced a few months ago, about a year ago, a little under a year, actually. It was supposed to, in their words, dramatically reduce homelessness. And they're pretending that they were just so effective that they didn't have enough space for the people that they were helping. That's actually what they were saying. Oh, yeah, we're bringing people in. We just don't know where to put them. We just don't have enough space. That is, of course, not even close to true. They did a lot of some good work, but they also have to receive the criticism that perhaps they had fallen short of the expectations of many, including myself. Now, that's Mayor Bruce Harrell. Now, for him to take this that personally, including myself, yeah, there's some arrogance, sure, and there's some political butt covering, but Seattle is putting in the majority of the money from a city-only perspective into this fund, and it's being misused by the KCRHA. And the truth of the matter is, the reason why this was such an epic failure was that they are unwilling to do the work that's necessary to clear these encampments and bring people inside. You absolutely need sweeps and you absolutely need a law enforcement component. They do not believe that over at the King County Regional Homelessness Authority. They think what they're doing is compassionate by allowing people to live outside until they're ready. And they won't do anything like a sweep until they get these individual subsidized housing, an apartment a homeless hotel room. And that is why they have failed. The crisis in the area that this particular program was supposed to help, it got worse. And keep this in mind, for those of you who live outside of King County, this exact idea is being debated right now over in Spokane on the east side of the state. They're thinking about, oh, maybe we should be doing a regional authority on homelessness. Oh, no. Mayor Harrell spoke with King Five. Not a mistake to create it. I think, again, lessons learned. We'll move forward to see how uh, the new iteration of it may be here in the near future. The problem is there were no lessons learned. 
They haven't changed their approach. They still don't endorse sweeps and law enforcement involvement. That was a lesson, but it wasn't learned. They didn't learn anything. If you're not going to adopt any of those lessons, can we truly say you learned them? Now, the Downtown Seattle Association put out a statement was pretty scathing, and they're not holding back any punches. They are holding back a few periods, I think. They had a couple commas in there. That seems just like a little unnecessary for a run-on sentence, but it was fine. Partnership for Zero was the right approach that was executed in all the wrong ways. The effort lacked sound management, oversight, and focus. A year and a half after launching Partnership for Zero, KCRHA has failed to deliver on its public commitment and stated goal to engage the nearly 1,000 individuals living unsheltered in downtown Seattle and connect them to services and housing. I believe the number that they said they quote-unquote engaged with was like 250, 255, something like that. All they did was promise to engage. That's it. That's not that difficult to engage. Just stare at someone and give them a wink and a nod. That's an engage. You might even get lucky. I'm kidding. Well, you might. They weren't even able to do that. And now we're supposed to feel bad that some of their staff members, I think it's overall about 60, 62, something like that, might end up losing their jobs. Okay, you failed. You wasted money. You did no benefit to the area. I'm sure you tried your hardest, but sorry, then your hardest isn't good enough. How about this? Don't try your hardest. Try my hardest. Do what I would do. Do what anybody who's listening right now who takes this crisis seriously would do, which is sweep, put pressure to get people into shelter, and if they say no and they're breaking the law, you're going to jail. Housing first as a strategy does not work. They won't get away from that. Let's find out what else is trending. What's trending? Foodie edition. If you eat at any taco truck, you are assuming a risk. Let us just make that loud and clear as it is established as a fact. Doesn't matter who you are. You can be Max, who can only afford to eat at taco trucks. You can be... I think I can afford a taco truck. Not in the city. Well, yeah, I didn't say in the city of Seattle. Fair. You have to go out. doesn't matter where you are. If you go to a taco truck, and I don't care who owns and operates it. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care if it looks grungy and gross. And I don't care if it is in tip-top shape. You are assuming a risk. That's how I view every single taco truck. And in this case, in Kirkland, 34 people learned that lesson. They didn't even have a milkshake, by the way. This was a taco truck, and they all got sick. Cairo TV says that King County Public Health is investigating a recent outbreak of stomach illness, which just means poop and vomit. Why can't they just say that? 34 people pooping and vomiting all over the place after they went to an event in Kirkland that was catered by the Tacos El Guerrero food truck. Another statement, if you're going to an event that is catered by a food truck, they don't care that you are assuming the risk of getting 
whatever stomach illness they claim could have been tied to this this taco truck. They say a day after the catered event, people reported their sicknesses to public health, which then kickstarted the investigation. That's odd. What triggers someone to call public health to say, I cannot stop pooping? Well, that's kind of what I was wondering with it. Like, what made this such a big deal? Is it because of the, what was it, frugals or whatever down in Tacoma? No, this is what I'm assuming happened. That's why they pay me the big bucks, Producer Max. (laughs) And they don't pay you yet, but soon. I have to assume that a bunch of people spoke to each other from the event and said, man, are you, ah, something's off. And then on the phone with, and her name is Susie, who, who the guy called. Say, hey, Susie, I'm just not feeling well. And she's in the, I don't feel, and they all kind of connected the dots and realized a whole bunch of them got sick. And then someone's all like, maybe we should call public health because if we're all getting sick, that's actually kind of a serious issue. It's not just one person who maybe caught something somewhere else. It's a lot of people who got sick. So they all ended up, or a number of them, I'm assuming, reported it. Then they did the investigation. Nobody, good news, has been hospitalized or died from the incident. They did, however, lose about seven pounds on average, which, hey, you know what? The only thing better than that is our our weight loss sponsor. And you don't have to get sick to do it. (laughs) Did you make that up or did they actually lose seven pounds? No, I made that up. Okay, that's what I figured. Have you ever had food poisoning before? I'm assuming yes. I don't know if it was food poisoning per know. se. Well, no, I'm saying I'm I'm certainly been sick. I don't know if it's if it was food poisoning or just a bug that was going around. That's the only thing. I well that's so one time I most definitely did. I remember telling this story. I was at CPAC, the one where I was giving a big speech. And the night before I had chicken that I dipped into a sauce that did not look or taste good. And I only had one bite. And I was violently ill to the point where Dr. Mehmet Oz gave me, and actually Dr. Jeanette Neshwat, two of my doctor friends, Jeanette and I are closer than Mehmet, but Mehmet was on the panel with me. And they both gave me a prescription for an anti-nausea pill called Onidesteron or something like that. And because I was like up all night, I was puking all night. I maybe got three hours of sleep. And that's when I text texted uh dr neshwat you probably see her from fox she's been on the show multiple times like i don't know what to do i'm so sick and she got back to me but i had already talked to Mehmet, and they had both put in a prescription for me after uh, i talked to them i'm sure you're nice and rational in that situation i was nice to to both of them because i was so sick i didn't want to puke in front of them so I couldn't, I couldn't even get snarky. I, I had no energy. I was so sick. And the thing is, once I took that pill, you just put it under your tongue for until it dissolves about yeah. a minute and a half, something like that. And it has a weird taste. But 25, 30 minutes later, it's like nothing ever happened. And I remember I timed it because when they put it in, I had to wait for the, <laughs> the place to open. And my speech was at – it was either 11 or 11.30. It must it must have been 11:30 because the why it was a drug Bartel one of those their version of Bartels maybe it was like Savon or whatever it opened at 11 and I got there in my Uber and I was just waiting there I was like driver I have to be back for 11:30 do not leave and I went in and it was 10:45 
and the the guy was behind the counter saying, "I can't open yet. Nothing's open. You gotta wait fifteen minutes." I'm like, dude, you're standing right there. Just give me the stupid drug. I'll give you cash. I'll give you whatever you want. He wouldn't do it, and we had to wait until exactly eleven. And as the gates were going up, I just jumped in. I was like, "Okay, just give me what I need." And he gave me my drugs, and I was like a little drug fiend. I was a little addict. I just quickly took it out of its package, popped it in my tongue, and then I went back into the Uber, got back. It was close to the hotel of, of the convention that we were doing. I got back in like 10 minutes, so I had about 20 minutes where I had before I had to be out backstage. So I go back there. They're already there, the other panelists, including Mehmet, and he's looking at me. You don't look so good. I'm like, no, it's not working yet, because I didn't know how long it was really going to take, because it takes about 30 minutes or so. I'm like, okay, I put it under my tongue like at 11.03, he goes, okay, that's great. So I'm sitting there. They're putting makeup on me to go on stage, and I'm just, just doing the whole And We've all been there. You're trying not to move at all. You're just breathing in slowly. Through your nose? Just through your nose, out your mouth. But you're not trying to move an inch, any muscle in your body. You're just... And the makeup lady is like, what's going on? I'm like, I'm going to puke on you, so stop talking to me. And I swear to you, as we were about to go on stage, it was 1127. We were backstage, like literally behind the stage, getting ready to walk on, and it went away. It was almost exactly 30 minutes. Wow, that's impressive. And now I never go anywhere without that pill. Have you had to use it again? Yes, whenever I feel nauseous. I felt nauseous today, and I came this close to popping it, and then it went away. Wow. Yeah, so that's all I have to say. Oh, but back to the story. Sorry. <laughs> Food provided for the catering event was also found to have been served out of an unpermitted food truck. They found, investigators found, they said, potential risk factors for bacteria growth. The factors included inadequate refrigeration. Oh, whatever. Who likes cold food? Improper cooling of food and lack of managerial oversight. Based on the concerns, environmental health investigators shut down the restaurant behind the, the food truck. They say the exact food and drink that caused the illnesses has not been identified. It's almost always going to be horchata because just looking at it makes you want to puke. I never had it before. Ugh, it's just milk with rice. They say this is not uncommon for outbreaks associated with a bacterial toxin. You know, yeah, you live and learn. It's worth the risk. Uh, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I think anytime you go to like a, a food truck, I mean, you would think at some sort of event that it would be a little bit more like one of the nicer food trucks. But I, I definitely think you do run the risk. Anytime. It might have been a nice food truck. Yeah, I mean, who, I've, I've never say? heard of them. I, I don't know what it is. I'm just saying all food trucks are the same. It doesn't looks are deceiving. Whether it's gross or, or spotless, I always just assume that there's a risk. And the thing is, I'm willing to accept it because their food is great. And maybe it's just living on the edge of knowing you might get something that's going to keep you up for 13 hours straight puking that gets you all excited. Maybe that's what gives some of the flavoring. Or maybe it's the roaches that might literally be in it. Because we used to call those roach coaches. Do they not do that anymore? I've heard the phrase. Yeah, that's what we called them in L.A. And they were always taco trucks and they were always near our college and they were all gross they just were they looked gross there was nothing about it that was appealing other than it was cheap and when you're a college student you, you have four tacos for a dollar and a six pack of rolling rock and then you're good to go because <laughs> that rolling rock costs maybe three dollars 
it, that's how bad and cheap that stuff was. Do they? Do we talked about this? Do they yeah. still make Rolling Rock? Yeah, that was that count? was one of the first beers I ever tasted. Was Rolling Ugh. Rock? Yeah, it's it's kind of rough, kind of rough. But when you're a college student of age, of course. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, you had to have because yeah, you I bought it at a Seven Eleven. Oh, <laughs> they actually card you even in California, SoCal. Like that's all you can afford, and so it's like okay. I mean, I was rich, so I could afford anything, but I wanted to I'm be sure. amongst the people. Push the button. What's trending? Let's get political. Well, let's talk about John Fetterman. Beer of choice, Rolling Rock. I'm willing. He looks like a Rolling Rock guy. Oh, it's got to be Yingling. He's from Pennsylvania. Senator Manchin, Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, he is now circulating a proposal that would reestablish a dress code in the Senate. No one seemed to think within Chuck Schumer's office that there would be this kind of pushback to allowing Fetterman to dress like a total and utter slob, like he's just getting ready for moving day. And he's got a bunch of boxes to put onto the truck before they make a long drive down to, you know, San Antonio, Texas. It's just like it's bizarre that they didn't foresee this because they do and should take this seriously. When you dress the way John Fetterman dresses, you're telling people you do not care. You have no respect. It's all about respect. And he doesn't have any. And apparently a lot of folks, according to The Hill, say that, yeah, senators are ticked off and this is bipartisan anger. They write one person familiar with the resolution said it would essentially return the Senate dress code to what it was last week, which required senators to wear coats and ties or business attire when on the Senate floor. One senator said, I've signed it. He explained it would, quote, Define what the dress code is. The decision to loosen the dress code is getting bipartisan support, or excuse me, pushback, including Senate Democratic Whip Dick Durbin, who says the Senate should have standards. He said on SiriusXM's POTUS channel, the senator in question from Pennsylvania is a personal friend, but he's totally a slob. And every time I look at him, I kind of want to puke, but I do hold it back. And then I end up swallowing it in front of people, and then that makes them puke. I added the puke stuff. That was a direct quote? I added that back. Oh, but okay. I think that that's what he meant. But I think we need to have standards when it comes to what we're wearing on the floor of the Senate. And we're in the process of discussing that right now as to what those standards will be. It's odd that Chuck Schumer didn't think to bring this up with other Democrats within leadership. Dick Durbin is that other second in command. You would expect that. Hey, Durbin. Hey, Double D. That's what he calls him. Come over here. Here's what I'm thinking. That John Fetterman slob. We need him on the floor. And he refuses to put on a suit and tie. He says he looks like Lurch. I keep telling him he looks like Lurch regardless of what it is he's wearing. He kind of <laughs> looks like Shrek and Lurch had a child. Yeah, don't think of what that entailed. And Dick Durbin was all like, maybe we ought not to do that because we should have a little bit of respect for the workplace. I mean, Jason Rance over at KTTH in Seattle doesn't allow his staff to wear shorts and sandals. And you're telling me that we're going to allow that on the Senate floor? I mean, come on. We can't allow a radio station to have higher standards than the Senate, even though, let's be honest, he probably does have higher standards than any of us here at the Senate. Why wouldn't you have that conversation? Why, why, why would this just be a decision Chuck Schumer would make seemingly unilaterally? What does he care whether or not John Fetterman is comfortable? <laughs> like, seriously, what, why does he care about that? What does John Fetterman have? 
over Chuck Schumer. Maybe a photo of Chuck wearing sandals and shorts and an oversized champion sweatshirt that would embarrass him if it ever got out. Talk to other people. I mean, is it truly the the point that he just didn't foresee any kind of pushback on this? Why would he not foresee pushback on this? Up until this point, has anyone else even attempted to wear what John Fetterman has worn? No. Why? Because people have respect. And why would you then not assume that people still have respect, even if it's John Fetterman there? Well, yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of other senators that don't necessarily want to wear a suit every single time they go on the Senate floor. But they do it, like you said, because they respect the office. They respect their constituents. They have a rule that says if let's say you're just coming from the airport or you're coming from the gym and then they just all of a sudden call the vote like you're in the Senate gym. Mm -hmm. You can vote with having one foot on the Senate floor. But your body has to be outside of the chamber and you can vote and have that counted. So just have Lurch do that. If that's the only thing that that's keeping him from going into the Senate floor is the the outfit. OK, well, you don't have to go onto the Senate floor. That's on you. You get to make that choice. How are people in like Pennsylvania reacting? I'm very curious about that. Not curious enough to Google it and look at local news media. But I am kind of curious whether or not they look at this and say, God, what did we do? Why don't we just not go with Mehmet? What's up with us? Ugh, we're the worst. John Cornyn, the Senate uh, senator, Republican from Texas, said that the bipartisan group want to restore the Senate dress code and calling it the coalition of the rational. Yep. 1-800-465-8770 for your texts. You're listening to The Jason Ranch Show. The Jason Rant Show. Here to react, Seattle Talk Radio host Jason Rant. And the rise of soft on crime laws and policies have made it worse. Our man in the Pacific Northwest, Jason Rance, is on that. And you keep on bringing her these extraordinary stories from Seattle. It's amazing. Long form. My next guest is a very big reason why talk radio is so influential. He is able to communicate political crises and explain so clearly what needs to be done in order to overcome America's enemies. In Mark Levin's newest book, he sets his sights on the Democrat Party and their ulterior motives. And the great one, Mark Levin, joins me now. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Jason. How are you, buddy? I'm doing pretty well. I'm, I'm excited about this conversation. Although I'll say, usually you're pretty blunt, but the title of this book is a little bit passive. Uh, <laughs> so the name of the book, The Democrat Party Hates America. Well, let me tell you something. I didn't give the book this title till I finished it. Really? So what should I call this? And it was the obvious title when I was finished because, uh, you know, I find that people in radio and TV, but particularly TV, are very nervous about saying things straight forwardly and that's what i do and so i finished the book and i said there's no concepts here this is just a party that is autocratic that is very uncomfortable with the american experiment that it spent virtually its entire existence trying to destroy that american experiment and so why wouldn't i say the democrat party hates america because if they love it they have a funny way of showing it yeah, they certainly don't celebrate this country in any meaningful way, especially the last several years. All you hear coming from the Democrat Party has effectively been putting the country down. And at what point did you realize that this is really the, 
the motive for this party? Because I think for a long time, I, I do think that they were hiding it fairly well. I've always thought that way. But, you know, um, you're writing about the symptoms, you're writing about the outcomes, you're writing about uh, the ends of what they do. And I just said, you know what, I, I, I have to re- rearrange this process. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, you can't effectively battle this if you aren't willing to name it and confront it, and in my view, defeat it. And so it became obvious to me that this is a party that rejects the founding. It rejects the declaration. It goes all the way back. I mean, uh, Woodrow Wilson used to trash the declaration all the time. Uh, They have never liked the Constitution because the Constitution is built to protect us from organizations like the Democrat Party. And when you read what these people say, and then when you read what people say when they come to America who have lived through tyrannies and totalitarian regimes, communism, fascism, in the 30s, the 20s, the 40s, you realize um, that the Democrat Party really is a party that's better fit for one of these European Marxist or fascist parties than it is for the American experiment. It's never embraced it, right? I mean, almost from the beginning, in the Civil War period, Mm -hmm. uh, it was the party of the Confederacy. What did the Confederacy want to do? It wanted to break away from the United States, form its own Confederacy over the issue of, among other things, slavery. Um, After the Civil War is won by the North, it didn't give up. Uh, The Klan was really its militia. Uh, they, They went wild with lynchings and brutality of all kinds. Uh, They have always opposed the vote for blacks right up into the 1960s. And they they, they project their history onto the Republican Mm -hmm. Party and onto the entire nation. So I said, you know what, enough of that. And in the the documentaries that are done for Franklin Roosevelt, what a fantastic man and president he was, I got tired of that because he was none of those things. And same with Wilson and same with Johnson. These men were racists. In FDR's case, he was also an anti-Semite. They were bigots. And I put in the book their own words, their own writings, Mm -hmm. uh, their own actions. FDR, you know, this great civil rights leader, FDR never lifted a finger for the black community. As a matter of fact, in 1940, when he got a bill on his desk, bipartisan bill coming out of Congress to have a federal law that outlaws lynching, he wouldn't sign it because he decided to run for a third term and he didn't want to lose the South. So in the middle of the Holocaust, you have hundreds of thousands of Jews trying to get to the United States. Their quota is well under the cap. One of his best buddies that he worked in the Navy with, Department of Navy under Woodrow Wilson, was in charge of immigration out of the State Department and just kept denying, denying, denying people coming in and even though Roosevelt had Morgenthau, the Secretary of Treasury, a Jew, and so forth around him, he sided with his friend. You had, you had American bombers bombing within five miles of railroad tracks going to Auschwitz, and he, and he turned them away. And I could go on and on about the Democrats and what they've done to this country with eugenics and uh, segregation. In the Republicans don't do this. Not the his- now, Republicans can be anemic and ineffective and frustrating as hell 
and even unwitting, sometimes witting, accomplices generally. But Republicans don't talk about fundamentally transforming America. The Democrats never stop talking about it. And so we need to accept that this is a party that's not your typical political party. It is a cultural party, and it is a, a, a governing party, and most of all, it is the monopoly party in the United States today, the exception of a few elections. Mm-hmm. But they don't let that get into the way of their ruling through their fourth branch of government. They've created this massive bureaucracy with the help of some Republicans, but it's mostly theirs, which is why we have these government shutdowns. They're not going to deny the fourth branch of government, which they own, a penny. They're not going to deny it personnel. They want to keep empowering it, empowering it, just redistributing wealth from the private sector to this massive bureaucracy with no accountability. Why? Because when you look at this party through the lens of power, and when you realize once monopoly control, doesn't mind that Republicans run, you just can't win. And when you understand that they want allegiance to the party and not the country, then you understand why the border is wide open. Yep. You know, they want to flip Texas blue, and then it's over. Republicans can never win an election again. Yeah, that's why you break up the so family. All this stuff's in the book. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say, that's why, I mean, a, a really big part of that is just also just breaking up the family. When you when you look at a lot of the things that they've done over the course, again, you, you, historically, this has been the case. But I think over the course of the last three years, a lot more folks have realized how bad it is. And when you view it through the lens of just not liking the whole idea of what this country stands for, it does make a whole lot more sense, which makes it easier, I think, to, to fight back. Well, Marx writes in the Communist Manifesto, you have to destroy the nuclear family. Why? You have to destroy any social construct that gets into the way of a new social construct where the government sets the social construct, that is, the central government. So one of the greatest challenges for the Marxist ideology is how to break up that family, that nuclear family. And so you see that the teachers' unions, which are an appendage of the Democrat Party, is openly coming between parents and children uh, in the most grotesque way. And how best to destroy the nuclear family? Well, you're destroying accepted norms. I mean, is a guy a guy and a gal a gal or not? So now this gets into another chapter in the book where I talk about controlling the language, Mm -hmm. controlling the thought process. We change our dictionaries. We punish people. We remove them from jobs if they don't comply with the social agenda and value agenda that's pushed by the Democrat Party. Now that's Lenin. Lenin says the language and the thought process needs to serve the party. Well, that's exactly what's going on. And, you know, people say, you mean this Marxism stuff? Mises said it. He said, we don't talk like a free people. We talk like Marxists anymore. When we talk about the economy, when we talk about, and he wrote that 50 years ago. And it's absolutely true. Excuse me. And, If people are uncomfortable with that word, my question is, are you uncomfortable with what the consequences are? I'm not saying these are doctrinaire Marxists. What I'm saying is they've adopted the autocratic monopoly mindset. And through the Democrat Party, they want to rule over us Mm -hmm. and look around you. Everything, every tradition, every accepted norm, the status quo is under attack. It's being destroyed. And it's not just happening because of Mother Nature. Mother Nature has nothing to do with it. Put the puzzle pieces together. This is man-made. And who are the men? 
the Democrats. Yeah. You're listening to The Jason Rance Show. Mark Levin joining us on the line. Again, the name of his book is called The Democrat Party Hates America. It's out right now. I do recommend it. As I say, I, I have not been promoting a lot of books on the show for the last few weeks because, you know, selfishly, I don't want to compete too much with my own book, What's Killing America, which is out next week. But this is an important one. Uh, Mark is incredibly important to the conservative movement. So I want you guys to check this out. Also, of course, he is a host right here on KTTH. We will continue our discussion with Mark when we come back. You're listening to The Jason Ranch Show. Welcome back to The Jason Ranch Show on AM 770 KTTH. In lieu of a quick hit, we're going to continue our conversation with my friend Mark Levin. The name of his newest book is The Democrat Party Hates America. It's out right now. As folks know, uh, I have not been promoting any other book uh, for the last couple of weeks because I've got my own book coming out. But if there was ever a book to purchase, uh, it would be The Democrat Party Hates America by Mark Levin. Uh, it, it is, I think, incredibly important reading. And I'm wondering from your perspective, because last time you and I spoke, we you were writing the book. You were doing some of the research for the book and you were really, you know, I think at that point, halfway in, did you find just sort of conceptualizing this book and getting to the research, because your books are known for being very well researched, was this easier for you to sort of dive in because you've been aware of the dangers of this party for so long? For some people, it's easy to write a book. For me, it is a journey. Yep. So I start with ideas and thoughts, usually based on other research I've done, because I could write three books at a time, but of course, it's impossible. And then I take the idea and I say to myself, what's the most urgent issue right now? Okay, let me follow that tributary and see where it takes me. And that's how I write a book. I have ideas. I have a, a notepad next to my bed. You know, when I go to sleep which, of course, uh, makes my wife uh, like, what are you doing? Uh, weekends, nights, sometimes I have to put everything down for a week, think things through, uh, but that's how I do it. So I don't have a uh, paint-by-the-numbers you know, way I go mm-hmm. through these things, other than to say that's what I go through every single time. Now, even as we're talking about this book, I have another one in my mind that has actually almost nothing to do with this topic. But it's so important to me that I promote this topic and what's going on in the country, that we readjust our thinking process. We readjust how we view the Democrat Party. I think Tom Lifson, writing in The American Thinker, did a review of the book. I don't ask people to do reviews. They either do them or they don't. And he writes in there, and he's the founder of this conservative site, and he says, I was a Democrat most of my adult life, and then I realized they were wrong. Now, having read this book, now I'm ashamed how the hell could I be associated with any organization that did all these things and is still doing all these things, mm-hmm. but just in a different way? And I'm hoping that's what people start to think, like, wait a minute, you're a Democrat? Why? And the more people who read the book or even part of the book, and it would sure as hell help if some Republican so-called leaders would read it so they know our history versus the other history. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping people will have a similar reaction, particularly If you read the chapter on anti-black racism, there is no reason in the world that a black person should be a Democrat. None. And so I hope people will read that because I think it's very, very important. 
It is important. It always feels like there's just this expectation that folks based on an identity will go ahead and vote a certain way. And certainly, you know, I'm Jewish, I'm gay, I'm I'm supposed to be a Democrat. I'm certainly uh, not even close to that. And, you know, people feel that pressure. Do you how often do you think people stay with their party, with the Democrats, once they truly figure out what they're about? Because I just I refuse to believe that we have so many Americans who hate this country as much as, as the, the party's ideology portrays. 100% correct. I think it's the people who sort of the ruling class and the elitists in the Democrat Party, I strongly believe that they do. You've got Bernie Sanders, Hakeem Jeffries. you got, I calculate, 10 to 15% of the Democrats in the House who are of this ideology at the minimum of course, a state-run party, which is what I call the Democrat Party, needs a state-run press. That's what autocracies need, and they have one. Um, and their propaganda mill, colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. Look what they did to Charlie Kirk the other day. Yep. Tried to shut him down. All he wants to do is talk and have a debate with the other side. They will not allow it. And as people will find in the book, this is critical because they're on a mission, and they cannot tolerate disparate views or competition of ideas and any of the rest, because these are the people who get in the way of, you know, the more perfect society. So to answer your question, the whole point of this book is for people who want more information to truly understand what the Democratic Party stands for. And I've got 65 pages of end notes. If anybody wants to challenge me, go for it. Uh, And so far, by the way, the left has been dead silent. Of course. Dead (laughs) silent. They don't want to engage I think the more people who open their eyes to this will be convinced. But the problem always is, as you know, getting people to open their eyes. Mm-hmm. People vote for tyrannies until it's too late. They vote for totalitarianism until it's too late. I read book after book of people who went through the Third Reich, or they went through Stalin's uh, gulags, they went through Mao, and they all say the same thing in many respects which is the people are suckered into these ideologies. They create this whole idea of oppressor and oppressed. They create group jealousies. It's never about individualism. They rewrite history as we rewrite history in our own country with the 1619 and CRT projects. And so there becomes a disconnect between a generation of people, citizens, and their own history and their own country. Why? Because whether it's the Democrat Party or any other autocratic party, as I said, they want allegiance to the party. Xi is the chairman of the Communist Party of China. That's how he took over the country. And that's what they want. And if you look here more and more, that's what we have. This is an incredibly important book. It's not just a book for folks at home. It's to purchase a book for a friend, maybe a Democrat who is open-minded. Get them this book. Let them actually read the history of the party and open up their eyes. I think it's going to be incredibly important for them. Again, the name of the book is The Democrat Party Hates America, and kudos for not saying Democratic uh, Party Hates America. It's the Democrat Party. Here's why I did that, Jason. If they can't describe a woman, then I'm not calling them Democratic. There you go. (laughs) I love that. Buy the book. It's out right now. Check it out. Again, The Democrat Party Hates America. Mark Levin, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. Really appreciate it. Well, let me it. say this before I go. I'm yes. very excited about your book, too, What's thank Killing you. America. And I'm halfway through it. It's a killer book, and I'm glad you'll be coming on my show, and we'll discuss it at some length. So 
kudos to you too, my friend. Thank you so much. That that means a lot. Uh, Mark is incredibly important in my career, uh, not just being so incredibly supportive, but he's been someone who I look up to as far as radio is concerned. And now as far as a book is concerned, I'm not going to reach your level but I hope at one point to get uh, to your come point. Come on, yes, you are already there. I, well, I All appreciate right, that. Mark, thank you so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. God bless you. Take God care. bless you. Again, check out the book. It's called The Democrat Party Hates America by Mark Levin. You are listening to The Jason Rant Show.